Well, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. We've, we've spent a good bit of our summer thinking carefully on the doctrines of grace, and, and we're wrapping that up. We really have, in a way, wrapped up the, this topic. Um, two weeks ago, you had some of the questions that have been asked that were answered by Ben. I, I'm going to attempt to do that as well this morning for some of the questions that came up related to certain topics that I taught about. So I was, I was teaching on radical depravity, I taught on unconditional election, and, and those two are primarily where some of the questions came from of, of what I taught about. So I wanted to speak to, to some of these questions, and, and really, it was, was kind of neat to see, I really do appreciate those who, who submitted questions, and then some who even verbalized questions, and just know that, that your question was not unique. You know, there, were, there, there was really you know, a theme going on with, with a lot of these questions that, that similar thoughts that individuals had. And so really, as I approach it this morning, really kind of, there are several different areas that I think that we do well to talk about. When we think of radical depravity, exploring what is, what is the extent to say that, that we're depraved uh, is uh, a reality, but then to add that we are radically depraved, recognizing that we are uh, totally corrupted. Every, every part of us is affected by sin. And what has that left us in? What state has that left us in regards to um, willingness to pursue God, ability to pursue God? Uh, those were some of the questions that came up. So we'll talk about that. Then I think even this wasn't necessarily worded in some of the questions that were asked, but I was recognizing that maybe there wasn't much discussion over the last couple months just on the order of salvation. So if we think through God saves sinners, and then as you walk through these different aspects of salvation and recognizing there is this biblical order, a logical order in, in regards to election, uh, calling, regeneration, and the justification, sanctification, glorification, you know, there is an order. And, and so I think if we grasp that order, that it puts to rest a few of the, the questions that, that were even asked. Well, that's in light of where I think regeneration falls in the order, I guess. When I, when I talk to you about where I believe regeneration is in our order of salvation, I think that will solidify some of um, the questions that were asked about that. Okay, then uh, as we start to think about election, we're, we identify this is a biblical word. So even last month at, at communion, we confessed together a statement that even used the word election in it. At the same time, recognizing that, that there's still, even within the life of our church, in our statement of faith, the word election is there. Um, but we're recognizing election is a biblical word. Uh, you can't avoid that word. But what does that word mean? And so when we're talking about how God elects uh, unto salvation, are, are we talking about you know, an unconditional election or a conditional election? Are we talking about an unconditional individual election? Are we talking about conditional corporate election? You know, I, I'm just trying to say that I think if we, we take our Bible seriously, everybody in the room would have to just say, I, I believe in election. So now what do I believe the Bible teaches about election? And so some of the questions that were asked were in regards to that. Are we, it isn't isn't what we see in the text talking about corporate election? 
Um, and, and so what, what I wanted to point to was seeing in the scriptures how I do think it's, it's very clear in the New Testament, and it even takes place in the Old Testament, of individual election. And when we're talking about God saving us unto salvation, that, that choosing that God does is an unconditional individual choosing of, of uh, sinners unto salvation. So we need to talk about that. And then we would do well to acknowledge, but there are several texts in the scripture that at first glance, if you look at that verse, it seems clear to not coincide with what we've talked about this summer. So we want to think about what's going on in 2 Peter 3, 9, what's going on in 1 Timothy 2, 4. And we need to think about these verses because anybody who would say, ah, I disagree with Paul in 1 Timothy 2, you know, then you have a, a bad theological view of salvation. So we don't disagree with Paul in 1 Tim- Timothy 2. What, what do I believe 1 Timothy 2, 4 says uh, in light of allowing scripture to interpret scripture, but also just what does 1 Timothy 2, 4 teach? What is Peter saying in 2 Peter 3, 9? So we'll look at those verses as well. So we need to pray to be, begin our time. And then I'd like to think that we will finish a few minutes early as well. But I started late, so now it's a tough task. So let me pray, and then we will we'll begin again with radical depravity. That's really where our study began. I guess that was in June, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning. That we can gather to uh, worship you, that we can fellowship with others who are in Christ, others who have been saved by the blood of Christ, and we recognize that this was a gift of grace. Uh, You save sinners, and left in our sin, we would be dead. We would have no interest in the things of God. We'd be in rebellion against you. We wouldn't be willing to pursue you. We wouldn't be able to pursue you. And so here we are this morning, individuals who, who... love you, and we recognize that that, that love, uh, that you, you first loved us, and, um, and now we, being placed into a right relationship with you, are able to, to love you. And so we just think, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of sins, the, um, the fact that we're now placed into a right relationship with you because of Christ. So I just pray as we are reminded of these truths as we think carefully upon salvation, that you'd be glorified, that we would be edified, that we'd be equipped and encouraged, and, and that it would even inform our worship as we go into the main service, that inform how we sing, it would inform how, how we pray, recognizing that you are sovereign, and then that we would just submit to your word as it is preached, as it's read and preached, that, that we would submit to the truth of your word. We love you and thank you and praise you for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in Romans 3. Um, Under the umbrella of of radical depravity, and maybe I guess do well just to really briefly remind ourselves of if we've had kind of five five overarching themes here. We we began with with radical depravity. Uh, We did even insert after that a discussion on regeneration. And then we've talked about unconditional election, um, irresistible grace, which, which the word that we used that week was effectual calling, that there's this calling that is effectual. We'll, we'll again refer to that this morning. Uh, we talked about 
limited atonement, if I'm just kind of trying to stay true to this acronym of TULIP, but I believe that, did y'all use definite atonement that morning? What, does anybody remember what Ben used in regards to the atonement? It was definite atonement we talked about, and then um, perseverance of the saints, and so, so that was the, that, that acronym, TULIP, and um, we're trying to answer some of the questions that came up as we talked about those doctrines. So you're in Romans 3, and let's just start in verse 9, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, turn to the right just a bit to Romans 14. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, so we can pause for a second just to explore what, what is being established here based on what the cross-references I'm looking at in Romans. You see in Romans 3, like the pervasiveness, pervasiveness of our sin. All, all have sinned. Even Romans 3.23, didn't even read that, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even earlier in chapter 3, we're talking about the sin that all of us are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. It's our very nature. And all of us have sinned. And Romans 3, 9 through 11, it's even showing us that what, what does that sinful nature look like? Uh, no one does good. No one seeks after God. But we're not willing. We're not able to seek after God, and the basis for that unwillingness and inability is our sinful nature. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Okay, so then in that Romans 14 passage, that's helpful to look at too, because then it even is reminding us that, that anything that we do, I mean, as sinners, we sin because we're sinners. You know, I want to just keep saying that over and over in our minds to recognize the order of that. That's our very nature. We're, we're born with a sin nature, and so we sin. And Romans 14 is saying everything that we do uh, apart from faith is sin. So, so you're just seeing that in our, condi- our sinful condition, unless God does something, there, there's no ability for us to do anything other than sin. Everything that's not done in faith is sin. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. And so those verses are really showing us very clearly what we're talking about when we're saying radically depraved. Because we recognize this is something that has affected all mankind, and all mankind is in this state. We don't seek God, we aren't willing to, and we're not able to. And so everything that we do apart from faith is sin. And, and the only way that we're going to uh, we need God to enter into the picture is what Romans 14, 23 is implying. Uh, we, we need faith. And Romans 3 said, no one seeks after God. No one's able to, no one's willing to. Okay, so I can continue with a few verses. Go back to the Gospels. Go to John chapter 3. John three nineteen and following. 
And this is the judgment, verse 19, John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's a lot going on uh, in, in these verses. If you start in verse 19, you're seeing this radical depravity. Uh, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Uh, it's because we're evil. We, we love evil. And so we hate the light. Um, yeah, verse 20 saying that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So we're seeing the lights come and it's been rejected because we love our wickedness. We, we're, we're, um, we love the darkness. So we don't want our wickedness exposed by the light. But then verse 21 speaks about those who actually do come to the light. Who is this? Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I believe that you're seeing there at the very end of verse 21, those who do come into the light, this is a work of God. This is a gift of God. Uh, they, this, these works have been carried out in God. So Romans 3, showing us that no one seeks after God. I'm sorry, yeah, Romans 3, Romans 14, saying that uh, everything we do is sin unless it's done in faith. John 3 is saying no one comes to the light because they love the darkness. The light would expose their wickedness. And then verse 21 then does say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So I'm proposing here in John 3 that, that he's not doing double talk in verses 19 and 21. He's saying in verse 21, those who do come to the light are those who, who, dot, who God has done a work in. Look at the end of that, that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, let's continue. I guess we didn't have to leave Romans, but uh, it's not hard to turn back there. Romans 8 um, Romans 8, 7 and 8. Um, for the mind, this is Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Romans 8, 7 and 8, again, is just emphatically showing us our nature. Our, we are radically depraved. We do not seek after God. We cannot seek after God. Our minds are hostile to God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And it's not just because we're stubborn. Look at what it says. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So in our rebellion, we are unable to do anything else unless God gives us eyes to see. So we're unable to please God, Romans 8. So then what that does then, those verses I think are helpful then to move into what was one of the questions that I thought was really helpfully stated. If you think of other synonyms or statements that kind of communicate that, that we are dead in our sin, one of the results of being dead in our sin is that we are separated from God. And so the question that was asked there, are we really talking about inability or, or does being dead in sin just communicate that, I mean, and I don't mean to say just, the, does dead in sin communicate that we are separated from God? Yes, it does communicate that we're separated from God. But it's also 
very clearly communicating that those, we're separated from God, but the deadness of in sin, we're dead in sin, we're separated from God, but being dead in sin means that we are, we are hostile to God. We, uh, we don't have minds that are set on the things of God. Our mind is set on the flesh. We're hostile to God. We cannot do anything that pleases God. We don't seek after God. Uh, we're not willing to, and we're not able to. That's what we're talking about with radical depravity. It's true that in our depravity, we are separated from God. But it, our depravity, not only are we separated from God, unless God opens our eyes, we have no hope, no ability, no willingness to pursue God and the things of God. And so that is, that is what we're saying when we're saying radically depraved. So then there'd be other passages, helpful cross-references that show us again what we're talking about. And Ezekiel talks about this heart of stone. And if you think of like what dead men don't do, it's like dead men, you know, can't speak. Dead men can't respond. Dead men are dead. Uh, if you think of like a, a rock, you know, this uh, Ezekiel, this heart of stone. You know, a heart of stone is not going to respond. It's, it's not living. It's not alive. It's a heart of stone. And God's going to give us a new heart. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 speaks about what this spiritual inability, this radical depravity looks like. He, uh, he says in, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're, we're blind. So we can't see because we're blind. We're dead. So we can't respond. We have a heart of stone, so it's, it's, it's uh, unable. And so that's what we're saying uh, about radical depravity. It's affected all mankind, and it's left us in this condition where we're neither willing or able to seek after God. And so that's where you do have to start there to see salvation. God saves sinners. It's a work of God. We're dependent on God to, to enter in and give us eyes to see. Uh, give us new hearts um, to respond. And so that's what was going on in, in that talk with regeneration that, uh, that, that Ben taught on. Okay, so let's, let's move on then from, from that. That's what we mean when we talk about radical depravity. Uh, it, it speaks to our condition, um, left in our sin, we're dead. Okay, so then I do think it would be helpful to talk about the order of salvation because uh, we have talked about election. We talked about effectual calling. We talked about, you know, the atonement. We talked about, uh, what did we talk about? Uh, what's, what am I not? Think, oh, and then perseverance of the saints. Um, there, there's a logical order, but it's also just this biblical order that wants to recognize that you could see in the scriptures, whether it's Ephesians 1 or other places that that God has elected those whom he will save before the foundations of the world. So if you look on like the timeline, you know, you have God electing sinners unto salvation. But then as you walk through the scriptures, this order of salvation, how this ends up working out, how the elect are saved, you see that, that it begins with this call. There is, as we acknowledge, this general call that goes out to the world. So every time the gospel is proclaimed, we have this gospel call that goes out to sinners. And the plea, this genuine offer that goes out, is pleading with everyone to respond in faith and repentance, responding to the gospel. Repent and believe. That's this gospel call that goes out. But we also are recognizing, and we saw this in John and elsewhere, that, that um, there is this internal call. This, this external call goes out to all, but there's this internal call that is effective, irresistible in the sense of 
When God calls somebody unto salvation, they respond. They cannot resist God's will. And so it is effectual. It, it affects something. It, 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 uh, it brings results. And so, so this, this order of salvation, we're seeing God elects before the foundation of the world. But then you're seeing in the timeline of, of like a, a Christian's life, when they come to Christ, it's, it's because this internal call went out. So, so this internal call um, we respond, and the reason that we respond to this internal call is because of regeneration. And so, so God gives us eyes to see. In fact, um, let's just look at a couple of, of passages very quickly about regeneration. I believe this would be review. Acts chapter 16, 14. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Look again at, 14b, um, well, 14a speaks of this call, this gospel call that goes out. When she heard us, they're, they're proclaiming the gospel, Lydia hears the gospel, and 14b says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So, so this regenerating work that the Lord opened her heart, that God is sovereign over the salvation of Lydia. The apostles proclaim the gospel, and Lydia responds to the gospel because the Lord opened her heart. So you have this call that goes out, and then regeneration. God opens our eyes, opens our hearts, removes that heart of stone, and gives us this, this heart that, uh, um, that is alive, that responds, that believes. And First uh, John 5 speaks to this regeneration and the order of regeneration in, um, in the life of a believer. First John chapter 5, verse 1. First John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So we're seeing belief, and we're seeing being born again, this regeneration. And First John 5, I believe with other places, and Lydia's a, a biographical example of this, where you're seeing regeneration preceding faith. And so everyone who believed has been born of God. And so in this order of salvation, you have this calling that goes out, and we are acknowledging this calling goes out to all, but there's this internal call that the gospel call can be resisted, and we see it all the time. It's resisted more than it's received, right? Uh, so the gospel call is rejected all the time. But this internal call uh, is irresistible. Uh, if God um, has elected you unto salvation, and he's going to open your eyes to the gospel, you can't resist that internal call. It is effectual. And so you have this call, then you have regeneration, and then you have conversion. So regeneration is preceding faith. As we look at these verses, calling, regeneration, then conversion. 
And that, that's the order here. And then now that we are in a right relationship with God, we're, we're, the gospel call goes out. God gives us eyes to see. We are converted to Christ. And then uh, we're justified. We're being sanctified. And we will be glorified. I mean, these are kind of, these are the, these are the major uh, order of events in the life of a believer. And so I hope that helps you understand what was being said from up here. When you talk, when you talk about depravity, and then you talk about uh, unwilling, unable, and then the gospel call goes out, and then people respond to the gospel, and you're thinking, man, they responded to the gospel. Obviously, they have the ability to respond to the gospel. Well, the reason they have the ability to respond to the gospel is because God drew them. God regenerated them. He gave them eyes to see, um, ears to hear, and so they respond rightly to the gospel. Yes? So, can you tell us how to understand all the verses that talk about seek God while you um, so as long as today is like, as long as you have life and breath, is that that you need to uh, respond? Is that what? You no, I mean you said people don't see. Right, right. But you're, but there's, um, I have to. Give you no, I yeah, I can. Where it says, I think in the Old Testament and New Testament, you know, seek them while you can. Kind of makes you think you can. People are seeking. Okay. So ability, you're saying, does that communicate ability when it's saying while well, you can? Yeah, I guess in, in my mind as I hear that, I'm thinking like you have life, you have breath, respond to the gospel. It's going to come a point where either you're just given over to, you know, like, or, or you, you're dead and you're judged and you spend eternity in hell. That, I, my first thought in response to that would be, that's what comes to my mind is it, if you have breath in your lungs, you know, you, this, you have the responsibility to respond to the gospel. Uh, and there's going to come a day when, when you're dead and judged. And so respond rightly to the gospel. Yeah, Mark, and it's 10.05, and I have three other of the four questions to answer. Wait. I had a similar question. Yeah. Okay. Because it seems like throughout the So the responsibility is all mankind. We all have that, and there again, these are those two parallel friends, the friendly truths next to each other that, that are hard to reconcile. That, that God is sovereign, man is responsible, and so this is a genuine offer of the gospel that goes out when we're when we're when we are calling all to repentance that and respond rightly to the gospel. That's what we're pleading with people to do. Uh, I I hope I'm. Referring to what you're talking about.
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply the being blind right now. So I'm not looking at the hands that are raised. Uh, th- thanks for, those were good questions and those are helpful responses. And I really do want to keep marching through and we can always ask other questions real quick. This next one, let me just read a passage. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3, very much speaking to the sovereignty of God over all things. God is in the heavens. He does everything that he pleases. Um, he does all that he pleases. Okay, so with that, let's look at two um, problematic is, is not a great word. Texts, like difficult texts, texts we need to think carefully about here. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Turn, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Beginning in the beginning of Beginning in chapter 2, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First, Timothy 2.4 tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, uh, you might want to keep your, your finger there. Uh, we're we're going to talk about it, it again, but I do want to, let's turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 real quick as well. 2 Peter 3.9. And again, I'll, I'll move back from where I just told you to go. Verse 8 But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, so just really quickly, somebody summarize. When you look at 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9, what are we seeing about the heart of God in both of these verses? He's writing to save people. Hey, say that again? He's writing to save people. Yeah, he, God saves sinners. He delights in saving sinners. And he desires to see, as, as 1 Timothy 2.4 says, uh, all uh, to... Um, I want to make sure I say it exactly right. All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires all people to be saved. Second Peter 3, 9 says, um, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So let's just be honest here. We read Psalm 115.3 that says, God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3, both talk about this desire that God has for all to be saved um, and to reach repentance, not wishing that any should perish, but that they should come to repentance. Okay, God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He desires that all be saved. All are not saved. So what's going on? 
we, we need to think about these verses. Which one is it? Do we take Psalm 115 or do we take, you know, 1 Timothy and 2 Peter 3? And I, and I hope you, you'd see that everyone in this room, regardless of, of where you're thinking in regards to the doctrines of grace, we're recognizing all three of these texts are true. All three of these texts are God's word. They're authoritative and they help us to understand um, the work of God in saving sinners. They help us understand the heart of God and delighting to see sinners come to repentance. Okay, well, I need to establish then uh, an, a, an important principle that's going to help us to understand all three of these verses. Uh, within the scripture, not just dealing with salvation, um, we see that with God, who is sovereign over all, that, that there is this sovereign will that Psalm 115.3 speaks to. Everything that happens, happens because God allowed it. God brought it about. God ordained it. This is what God um, willed to happen. This is this secret will. There's no rogue molecules, as, as R.C. Sproul would have said often. Uh, God does what he pleases. Everything that happens, happens because it's the will of God, the sovereign will of God. But then in the scriptures as well, we read of Often, that's, a, that's the secret will of God that always comes about, what we just were referring in Psalm 115. But then there's these other passages in Scripture that talk about this revealed will of God uh, that, that we'll of, often see that it, it's revealed. This is the will of God, but this is, this is not necessarily what we see uh, taking place even in like our own lives. Go to, go to 1 Thessalonians real quick. 1 Thess Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You know, if we're trying to discern the will of God, what's God's will for my life? Uh, part of that answer is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so, it's just interesting here. You see, 1 Thessalonians 4 is showing us the revealed will of God. God's will for your life is that you pursue... Um, you know, holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you are sanctified. This is, this is the will of God for your life, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Are there examples of people resisting this revealed will of God? It's pervasive. Okay, so this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, but, but people don't uh, resist sexual immorality. And so this revealed will of God is, is rebelled against. It is not obeyed. So you have these examples in, in, in the scriptures and in, in life of, of this revealed will of God that, that is um, rebelled against. But there's this secret will of God, Psalm 115.3. God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing can, can thwart his sovereign plans. Okay, so uh, let me even just give you a couple examples of this secret will of God. If 1 Thessalonians 4 is revealed will, let's look at the secret will of God. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. You know, as clear as, as the will of God is in 1 Thessalonians 4, there, there's no ambiguity there. What, what's God's will for your life? I mean, that I pursue sexual purity, that I'm that I, being sanctified, that I re resist sexual immorality. But look at, look at James 4. It, it refers to this hidden will of God, this secret will of God. James chapter 4, verse uh, 13. 
Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In this James 4 context, how do you know whether or not it's the will of the Lord for you to live tomorrow. tomorrow. That's right. If you're alive tomorrow, God willed it, right? Deo volente. Um, The Lord willed it. Um, That's the secret will of God. You're prideful and arrogant if you say, tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town, we're going to do such and such a thing, and this is what is going to happen because I am the captain of my ship. I, you know, determine what's going to happen. I produce results. No, that's very prideful. That's the arrogance being addressed in James 4. And so it's saying, um, if, if the Lord wills it, it will happen. And how do you know whether or not the Lord wills it? Well, it's not the, the revealed will stuff, because you can say, how do I know? It says it in the scriptures. Resist, you know, sexual immorality. Abstain. That wasn't a strong enough word. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's, that's the revealed will of God. But then when you're talking about the secret will of God, how do I know whether or not I'm going to live tomorrow or go this in such a place? Well, you're going to know when it happens, this was the will of God. God brought this about. God let this happen. So you do have these two wills of God on display in the scriptures. Revealed will, secret will. And if you hear that at first and think, wow, this just sounds so um, hard to recognize, hard to hard to process, realize that whether or not you think God is sovereign over salvation or that, that man, has, man is the one who chooses, both views are going to have to deal with these two wills of God. Because you're either saying, you know, here, if, if you don't think God is sovereign over salvation and you're thinking that man chooses God in, in and of themselves, here's what you're saying. You're saying 1 Timothy 2 and, first, and 2 Peter 3 are saying that God wills that everybody's saved but God also wills that we have free will. So he's got like these two different wills. If he willed that everybody's saved, but everybody's not saved, it's because he willed that, that everybody has free will to choose God. And so he's got these two rival wills. And, and, and the, where I'm coming from, there's two wills of God as well. You got this revealed will of God in the scriptures, places where it says what God wills for your life. Obey it, believe it respond to it. Um, but then there's also this secret will of God that, um, that, that we don't know. Um, it's not revealed. It's in, the, it's in the mind of God. Okay, so this happens all the time in the scriptures, whether it's with Pharaoh and his hardened heart. Um, the will of God would be that, that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go. And, and um, Moses is pleading with Pharaoh in that way that let, let God's people go. Let my people go. But then you're also seeing this secret will of God that, that God has hardened the heart of Pharaoh because, um, because of his secret will in, in judging Pharaoh and, and carrying out this 10th plague even. This is part of the secret will of God. You move into 1 Samuel in chapter 2, you know, Eli's wicked sons. The will of God for, has been established through how priests were to act. And these guys were, were acting in an um, ungodly way. They were not ob- abiding by First Thessalonians 4, what we just read a minute ago. And so you're seeing that, that they've resisted God's revealed will. 
But in, why did they resist God's revealed will? You actually read in 1, Thessalonians, 1 Samuel chapter 2 that, that God had willed to put them to death. So, so to be glorified through judging sin and in the secret will of God, he had willed, that's even the word, you know, we'll translate it into English, that it was the will of God to put them to death. On and on we could go. You go into Acts and you're seeing the, um, the, the wickedness that, that, is, that um, puts Jesus on the cross. And, and this is in rebellion against the revealed will of God to, to um, respond to the gospel, to, to, um, to resist the devil, all of these things. But then in the, the secret will of God, you're seeing that it was, they were bringing about what God had willed to happen. And so over and over and over again, there are events in biblical history of, of God's revealed will um, being resisted uh, because his secret will is being accomplished. God does not intend to bring everything about that he values, but he never, he never fails to bring about what he intends. Okay, so that's what you're seeing. In 1 Thessalonians 4, what does God value? Holiness. But um, he, he doesn't bring about holiness in everyone's life, but he always brings about what he intends in everyone's life. So I think that's what you're seeing in both of these revealed will and um, hidden will. So I, I, that's how I would explain 1 Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3. Uh, I think the all means all in those verses, which is not necessarily what everybody would think um, in, in from like kind of the camp that I'm coming from. But I do think, man, let's just, let's just see that word there. It's all. God, there's, the heart of God is on display in delighting and seeing sinners come to salvation. And so this revealed will of God is that all would respond to the gospel. But the, the hidden will, the secret will of, of God, which you even read about in, in, in um, other places in the scriptures, God, God is glorified through saving um, those whom he's chosen. And, and then his, his judgment is poured out on those who remain in their rebellion. And so I, I think the two wills of God, uh, the revealed will of God is on display in First Timothy 2, 2 Peter 3, but the secret will of God is on display in the fact that not everyone comes to Christ because only those who come to Christ are those who God has chosen. All right. Um, Last, just a real helpful question in regards to, are, are we talking, when we, we see election, clearly a biblical word, it's all over the place, and even something like Ephesians chapter one, just go there real quick, Ephesians one. When we talk about election, are we actually talking about unconditional individual election, or are we talking about just that God ha has elected corporately, like the church, and so everybody then who responds to the gospel is placed into the church. So God chooses the church, and, and then it, it's up to us to choose to respond to the gospel. And if we do, we're placed into that elected body, that, that corporate entity, the church. Are we talking corporate or are we talking individual? And I'd say we're talking both. Um, God saves in, in the Old Testament um, a nation— God chooses individuals unto certain tasks. God is an electing God. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. But God also chooses individuals for, um, he chose Abraham. You even think Romans 9 referring to the Old Testament, we're talking about Jacob and Esau, individuals, where God chooses um, in those individual settings. Ephesians 1, I believe, shows us this individual 
election as well, just start in verse three. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Keep, keep identifying the pronouns here real quick. Okay, so you saw us in verse four. Now we're in verse five. <clears throat> in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, uh, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, salva- of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Okay, I, I just felt like I wanted to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to focus in on verse 4. So, so when we're looking at Ephesians 1, who, who's the object of God's electing love? Um, us. That's right. And so there is a reality when we start saying God is an electing God and we're recognizing that in the Old Testament you see him choosing a nation. You see him choosing individuals. You see him choosing, you see him choosing individuals into, um, into the family of God. Okay, but then you also see him choosing individuals under certain tasks. There are a variety of choosing uh, realities going on all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, and then you even see it language of, of him choosing the son, choosing Christ, to, uh, choosing the Messiah. Like there's election all over the place. Then and when you go into the New Testament, very clearly you see this unconditional election. When you think of a Romans 9 reality of, of why he chose Jacob and not Esau, that is the most clear place to see the unconditional reality of, of election. But it's also talking about an individual. Uh, there, this unconditional individual election in Romans 9. So I think all of those cross-references help you to see this individual election as well in Ephesians 1. Because this is not, if you think like Paul writing a letter to Timothy, that's an individual where he would say you. Like not, and he wouldn't use plural pronouns if he's talking to Timothy. But this letter, who's it being written to? a church, like the church at Ephesus, and then it's to be passed around to these other churches in the region, and then it's to be for the church universal. Uh, and so you're seeing this plural pronoun uh, that characterizes those uh, individuals that that's, are saved, right? Uh, he chose us in him. So you keep seeing us, 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 we, we, we. Um, the, I, I believe you're seeing individual election on display in Ephesians 1. And the object of the electing is, is, is the us, not Christ. It's not that he chose Christ and then we are placed, because it is true to say we are placed into Christ. We are in Christ as believers. But Ephesians 1, the argument here that's going on is saying we are chosen um, 
He, he saved us. He chose us in Christ. So we're not talking about the election being that God chose Christ and that everybody who responds rightly to the gospel is placed into Christ. Ephesians 1 is saying he chose us, the election. We are the objects of his election when we're talking about election unto salvation. We, uh, the believers, the elect, we are the object of God's choosing unto salvation. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So then you go on in the New Testament and find other places where individuals are even um, referred to as these individuals who have been the object of God's unconditional election. Uh, last cross-reference, and, and then we'll be done late. Romans 16.13, just look in these final uh, instructions that are going on from Paul in this so important of a letter. Uh, and these greetings, verse 12, greet these workers in the Lord. Uh, then verse this 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Um, so, so Rufus, that you see this, he, he's part of the elect. Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I mean, there's just a, another example of individual election on display in the scripture. So I do believe when we're talking about election unto salvation, that it's unconditional and it is individual. Um, and these individuals are saved into a community, a church. It's not that we're just, it's just us and God and no one else. We're, God saves us and he saves us into the body of Christ. But, but um, he, he saves us as individuals. Well, I, I'm sure that, that questions abound. Um, I, I sure hope that we would be accessible, not always in like a, a timed 45-minute group lesson, uh, probably like short and harsh and quick and, and stuff like that. But man, we can interact with this more throughout the week if you want to ask more questions. But, but we really do need to, to finish 13 minutes ago. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for just what we all in here know to be true, that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. Um, we recognize that you save sinners. And we see in the scripture, it is so clear that we are all sinners and our sin has separated us from you and our greatest need is righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ so that we can be placed into a right relationship with you. We need our sins forgiven and we need to be credited with righteousness. So we just thank you and praise you for the gospel. Pray that everyone in this room would be trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And I pray that this would be on our lips as we go from here, that we would plead with others as even questions have come up this morning, just even asking what, what, is, our, called, what is our responsibility to, to proclaim to others and what is the responsibility to respond. God, God we pray that, you would, that we would be faithful to, to communicate the gospel and that you would do that work of salvation, of, of opening eyes, giving ears to hear, removing the heart of stone and, and, and causing um, faith in the life of those whom you have chosen. We do love you and we thank you and praise you. Be glorified through the worship that continues here this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.